Hi, welcome one and all. My name is Shelley Hurley, and I am so blessed to be here today. Can I tell you how full my heart is after I've been studying this book of Malachi? This has been such an amazing journey going through these minor prophets, and I am so blessed to be here today to share with you today's message entitled, A Heart of Worship, as we go through Malachi 1. This is a message that is relevant for us today. Do you ever feel like you're just going through the motions in your Christian walk? Kind of rote and half-hearted, lukewarm? God wants to restore in us a heart of worship, a pure heart of worship, one of passion, devotion, reverence, and obedience, a heart so full of the gratitude for all He is and has done for us that we fall down at His feet in reverence and awe and worship. Malachi's name means my messenger. This was his life's calling from God, to proclaim God's message to the backslidden people and priests who are neglecting the worship of God and failing to live according to His will. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, written around 432 to 425 B.C. approximately, those last written words of God to His people before what is known as the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and when the silence was broken with the angel's announcement to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1 about the birth of John the Baptist, also God's messenger, to prepare the way for the Messiah. As we look at the history of the Jewish people, the chosen people, we can see a pattern of captivity, exodus, and restoration. The children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and so God raised up Moses to deliver his people from bondage and slavery. God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, Let my people go that they may worship me. As Moses led the people through the wilderness to the promised land, much of Moses' and Aaron's occupation during that journey was teaching the people the proper worship of God in the tabernacle. In the books of Haggai and Malachi, we see the story of a second exodus, this time the return of God's people from captivity in Babylon. Haggai's concerns are with the rebuilding of the temple, and Malachi's concerns are the proper worship centered in that rebuilt temple. Malachi is written about a century after the book of Haggai, and abuses had started taking place. As they waited for the prophecies concerning the promised Messiah and their final deliverance and fulfillment of the covenant promises to come to pass that were foretold by the prophets, they became disillusioned, more complacent, apathetic, and lukewarm. They thought their relationship with God could be maintained by formal ritual alone, no matter how they lived. Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah, and those same concerns are addressed by him as well. In the book of Malachi, the focus is on the attitudes and the heart of those who worship. In this series of question and answers, God is seeking to pierce through to the heart of the matter, the matter of the heart. Malachi's appeal is to a backslidden people. They were offering up worthless worship. God wants to be glorified among the people so that all will see the true and living God, the one who loves them and wants a relationship with them as we rightly represent Him through pure worship. God desires us to have pure worship. Why was theirs worthless? I have three points. Number one, they doubted His love. Number two, they despised and dishonored His name. And number three, as a result, they defiled the sacrifices. 
We look at the first point, they doubted his love. Let's look at verse 1 in chapter 1. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. I have always loved you, says the Lord, but you retort, really? How have you loved us? Warren Wiersbe says, Doubting God's love is the beginning of unbelief and disobedience. Not only did they doubt God's love, but they doubted His word. They didn't trust God to be faithful to His covenant to them. God responds with, This is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau and devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Esau's descendants in Edom may say, We have been shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of heaven's armies replies, They may try to rebuild, but I will demolish them again. Their country will be known as the land of wickedness, and their people will be called the people with whom the Lord is forever angry. When you see the destruction for yourselves, you will say, Truly, the Lord's greatness reaches far beyond Israel's borders. God showed His love to them by choosing them for His own special people. Deuteronomy 7, 7-9 says, The Lord did not set His heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and He was keeping the oath He had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps His covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes His unfailing love on those who love Him and obey His commands. What does it mean that He loved Jacob and hated Esau? That verse always sounds a little harsh, right? That word love, ahav, means that unspeakable love and tender mercies of God in the covenant relationship with His people. Many times in the Old Testament, the word hate may simply mean not to choose. In His sovereign purpose, God set His love on Jacob and his descendants. He chose Jacob to be the one whom the nation of Israel and the Messiah would come. He chose Israel as the apple of His eye. Hate clearly seems to mean something like loved less. God hated Esau in regard to inheriting the covenant, not in regard to blessing in this life or the next. We can see in Genesis 33 and 36 that Esau was a blessed man. He fathered a nation, but that nation, Edom, later became one of Israel's chief enemies. Esau and his descendants, like the Edomites— brought about God's judgment upon themselves by demonstrating resentment and hostility towards Jacob. Edom was known as the wicked land, while Israel was known as the holy land. Did they forget, did Israel forget, that they were his chosen people, the Lord's portion, the place of his inheritance? Did they forget the covenants he made with Abraham and Moses and David? Did they forget how he found them in the desert and delivered them from bondage? Did they forget how he parted the seas, how he destroyed their enemy, how he led them through the wilderness, how he provided for them, how he protected them, how he got them moving, how he instructed them, how he watched over them and guided them all the way to the promised land? Just as Israel, I too am a child of God. I am loved. I am chosen. I am forgiven. I am the apple of God's eye. I am sealed by His blood. I am instructed. 
I am cared for, I am provided for, I am protected, and I have been given the unfailing promises in his word to stand on and cling to, and I have a home in heaven reserved for me. But the problem is, oftentimes, I too can forget, and I can doubt God's love for me as well. You know, if we ever doubt his love, maybe because we're going through hard times, or maybe because those prayers we've been pouring out our hearts to God haven't yet been answered, all we have to do is look to the cross. There is no greater demonstration of that love than the cross. In Ephesians 3, 17-18, Paul wants us to know this love of Christ that passes knowledge. He wants us to have our roots grow down deep as we make our home in Christ, as we trust in Him. And verse 18 says, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love is. Calvary love. When I look up and see His thorn-crowned brow, as He, the King of the universe, was mocked and scorned to shame for me, as I look down and behold His feet that were nailed to the cross, those feet that walked the dusty streets in search of the lost, that have sought me out when I was so low, saving me from my sin and shame. When I look at the width and the breadth of his love, I see his nail-pierced hands ever extending, beckoning all to come to the cross, reminding me that my sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, and there is no length that he would not go to in order to reach us and to reach me with his love. And when he gave that victory shout on the cross, it is finished. He set me free. My chains were loosed and my bondage to sin were broken. He broke them and he set me free to worship him. In Romans 5.8, we read that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Pure worship is motivated by love. Our worship to God is a response to His love for us. We love because He first loved us. Do we want to grow in our passion and worship for the Lord? Then we need to spend time contemplating His great love for us as we gaze upon the cross. We worship Him because He chose us. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Paul writes, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. And then in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we read, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How do we know if we're chosen by God? Choose him. Choose Jesus. In John 3.16, which we all know and love so well, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Romans 10.13 reads, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
I am one of those whosoevers and one of those whoevers, and I choose Jesus. Okay, my next point is, number two, they despised and dishonored his name. In Malachi 1, 5, and 6, we read, Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, In what way have we despised your name? They despised and dishonored his name. To dishonor also means to profane, to defile, to pollute, to prostitute, to make common, to desecrate something that is holy. To honor means that weight, that honor, that esteem, glory, majesty, abundance, wealth. Glory and honor are due his name, and yet they have dishonored it and they have despised it. My last name is Hurley, and in 1999, my husband started a clothing company that bore our last name Hurley, which we had for about 20 years, and now we no longer own that name. I remember how strange it was at first to see your name across hats and shirts, and I remember thinking, well, I must know all those people that are wearing that shirt or that hat. And then everywhere I went, I started seeing that name on their clothing. One time I was looking at the news and I saw a man who was wearing a Hurley shirt and he was risking life and limb to save a busload of people from falling off of a bridge into the water. And I was so proud of him and that he was wearing our name. But then another time... I was watching the news, and I saw the newscaster um, describing a man by a sketch, and she said that there was a man. He had a hat on, and across that hat, it had a name, and she spells it out, and she said, that hat says H-U-R-L-E-Y. And I remember, I wasn't so proud of him. I think he was wanted for bank robbery or something like that. I didn't really want to be identified with him. He wasn't living up to what I wanted our name to represent. In this chapter alone, God mentions his name, the Lord of hosts, 24 times. This name emphasizes God's supreme rule over every other power in the material and spiritual universe, whether they be angelic beings or human beings and nature itself. He is a God so magnificent that all creation serves His purposes. He also reveals Himself as the Father, Master, and the Great King. Throughout this chapter, we see that Malachi's emphasis is on the name of God and reminds us that he wants his name to be known and magnified to be made large among the Gentiles. God wants his people to be a witness to the Gentiles. When God brought his remnant back to the land, he wanted to once again bless them, manifest his glory through them, but they failed to trust him and obey his law. Even if they repented, they could have been examples of the grace and mercy of God, but their witness was weak and they missed their opportunity to glorify God. How did they dishonor his name? They failed to show him honor and reverence. The priests were God's representatives, intermediaries to the people. They were to reflect God's attitude and character. The worship of God was no longer heartfelt adoration, but a burdensome job for the priests. To reverence his name. They failed to reverence his name. That reverence, that fear of God— Fear of God for us does not mean being terrified of Him, but a proper respect and reverence for Him, a reverence that leads to obedience and worship, 
a wholesome dread of displeasing him. That purpose of worship is to bring glory and honor to his name, to declare his worth. He is worthy of it all. When we bear the name of Christ and live contrary to his character, we dishonor his name and we leave a wake of shrapnel and dead bodies behind. They did not revere God. They took sin lightly. They were not in awe in the presence of the three times holy God. Do we tolerate sin in our lives, taking it lightly? Then maybe we need a fresh vision, and we need to draw into the presence of our holy God. As we read the Word, do we long to see God? Do we long to draw closer and nearer to Him? The prophet Isaiah saw the heavenly vision with the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And when he saw the holiness of God, he was completely undone. He saw himself and his sin in the light of God's presence. And he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then when he said this, an angel came and touched his lips with a coal from the altar and said, Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. How else have they despised and dishonored his name? They defiled the sacrifices. In Malachi 1, 7 through 10, we read, You offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. But when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all, asks the Lord of heaven's armies. How I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. They were told to offer up unblemished, perfect sacrifices for the atonement of their sins and the people's sin. This was painting a picture of the Messiah to come, Jesus, the perfect, spotless Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And in offering blemished sacrifices, they were painting an inaccurate picture of God and His perfect plan of redemption. The priests had become indifferent to the rules of worship, and the people had become apathetic, half-hearted in their worship of the Lord. In the message translation, in verses 12 and 13, it puts it this way, that they said worship was not important, and what they brought to worship was of no account. In their lack of reverence for his name, they allowed and offered blemished sacrifices, stolen sacrifices, animals that were useless, broken, or hand-me-downs, offerings that they wouldn't even consider giving to their governors in taxes, were somehow acceptable to give to the king of the universe? They also sneered at having to offer their sacrifices to God and said, What a weariness. It's too much trouble. It's too hard. A waste of time. I'm bored. This isn't doing anything for me. So they offered what was convenient, just enough to appear to obey God, and then pat themselves in the back and tell themselves how righteous they were. They cared more about pleasing man than pleasing God with their worship. Do we ever find ourselves in any of these things? Do we go to church because we have to? read our Bibles because we have to, offer rote prayers because we have to, volunteer to serve because it seems like it's our duty, 
And while in church, are we thinking of what to do as soon as we get out of there or where we would rather be? Or are you offering the Lord your leftover time, money, or energies, if there is any? Our offerings reflect our true heart and attitude. Is our worship or service to the Lord done to impress others or to appear more righteous than we are? If so, it is not pleasing to the Lord, and it will all be wood, hay, and stubble and go up in flames. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.5, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are God's priests. What kind of sacrifices is He looking for? Warren Wiersbe says, Our offerings to God are an indication of what's in our heart. Psalm 51.17, the psalmist writes, My only sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, broken with sorrow for sin, thoroughly penitent. Such, O God, you will not despise. Are we broken over sin? In 1 Samuel 15.22, Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. I've heard it said that obedience is the highest form of worship. Obedience from the heart. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. We read in Hebrews 7, 26-28, that because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice of himself, once for all, we no longer have to offer up blood sacrifices, but we can offer up our praise and worship and adoration in response to him and join the heavenly chorus in Revelation 4 and 5 and cry, You are worthy of it all. What kind of sacrifices is God looking for? Well, one day, a pig and a chicken were walking past a church where they were having a charity event to help the poor. Getting caught up in the spirit, the pig suggested to the chicken that they make a contribution. Great idea, the chicken cried. Let's offer them bacon and eggs. Not so fast, said the pig. For you, that's a contribution. For me, that's total commitment. God wants total commitment. Paul writes in Romans 12.1, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. To be a holy sacrifice is to be completely set apart for God and dedicated to his service. God wants our body, mind, and will, emotions, and plans totally surrendered and yielded to him. This is our only reasonable and rational response in light of all he's done for us. He doesn't want just a contribution. He wants total commitment. Pure worship is costly. Are we willing to say with the songwriter, Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. 
Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. Oh, God wants all of us. He wants our whole heart. Malachi says in verse 11, chapter 1 here, For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is a promise for the millennial age to come, and yet it is also a challenge for us today as God's chosen people to make His name honored among the nations. The Lord inhabits the praises of His people. Let us begin with pure worship and bring God's presence into our hearts and into our homes, to our neighbors, our workplace, and pray that we would honor His great name wherever we go. A.W. Tozer said, Our Lord commands us to pray, the Lord of the harvest, that He will send forth laborers into His harvest field. What we are overlooking is that no one can be a worker who is not first a worshiper. Labor that does not spring out of worship is futile. My identity as a chosen child of God, a royal priest, should impact all other roles I have, such as wife, mother, grandmother, friend, daughter, teacher, etc. And as I bear His name, I am to represent His character and bring honor and glory to His name. Johann Sebastian Bach often wrote the initials SDG on many of his arrangements. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone, to signify that the work was produced for the sake of praising God. You know, I was recently at our home in Hawaii, and our painters there are amazing. They are such a beautiful example of this very thing. They listen to worship music as they paint, and they sing and paint with all of their heart and strength. Mike, the owner, always tells his crew that they are painting God's house. Everything they do and say is for His glory. They painted a house as a love offering for a friend, and the neighbor thought that there was a party going on. And there was. It was a worship party, painting for the glory and praise of God. What would be the result in our lives and the lives of others around us if we adopt this attitude of worship in everything we do? As we minister to our husbands, we are ministering to Jesus. As we feed and bathe our little ones, God's children, we are doing it unto Jesus. When we fold laundry, do dishes, honor our boss at work, honor our employees at work, when we give our best in everything we do, if we do it for the glory of God, it will reap eternal rewards. Pure worship is eternal. We will be building God's house with gold, silver, and precious stones. Jeremy Riddle writes in his book, The Reset, I'm pleading that we recognize the sovereign hand of God moving in this hour and with fear and trembling consecrate our lives afresh, our gifts, platforms, and favor to see an even greater awakening and release of His glory on the earth. Will we yield the whole of our lives again? Will we earnestly repent and return to the purity we started in? Will we forsake the earthly and foolish ambition 
that currently abounds and masquerades as spirituality? Will we respond to his moving by cleaning house and purging the inner chambers of our own temples from all that is corrupted and polluted first love? I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. Jesus says in John 4, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. He wants our whole heart. He wants all of us, a total commitment. Will you answer His call?